you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the big show. We certainly appreciate you guys coming by. 15 years of bringing the smartest people, the CEOs, the billionaires, the White House presidential advisors, the Pulitzer Prize winners, the brilliant authors and minds that write the latest stuff and expose you to the stories of the world. As we always say in the Chris Voss Show, stories are the owner's manual to life. And so we're excited to have two amazing journalists with us today. And their book that launches today on January 30th, 2024, it's called Find Me the Votes a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor and rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election. We have journalist Michael Isikoff on the show with us today, and Dan Clydman joining us on the show. And they're going to be talking to us about their amazing book, their insight, their hard-hitting reporting, and everything that went into it. Michael Isikoff is a award-winning Washington investigative journalist and author of three New York Times bestsellers, Uncovering Clinton, a reporter's story, Hubris, the inside story of spin, scandal, and the selling of the Iraq war, and Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America. Daniel is an award-winning journalist and author based in Brooklyn. He spent more than a decade at Newsweek, where he served as a managing editor, Washington bureau chief, Middle East correspondent, and investigative reporter. Welcome to the show, Michael and Daniel. How are you? We're good. We're good. This good to be with you. There you go. Very exciting. Congratulations on the book. I'm sure a lot of hard work and hard-hitting journalism went into this. Give us your dot-coms, your Twitters, wherever you want people to find you on the interwebs. I'm at D. Clydman. That's K-L-A-I-D-M-A-N, at D. Clydman. And I think my Instagram is the same. There you go. And my Facebook. And, and I'm at Isikoff, I-S-I-K-O-F-F, on X, formerly known as Twitter. There you go. And so congratulations on the new book, guys. Find me the votes, damn it, or else. I don't know. Well, that's not in the title. So give us a 30,000 overview of what's inside the book. Look, this is the story of the Georgia case against Donald Trump. And there is a, as we write in the book, a compelling logic to focusing on Georgia. Georgia was ground zero for what we say was the most anti-democratic plot in American history. It's where Trump's pressure campaign was most furious, most intense, most relentless, and led and went to the most extreme lengths in terms of the pressure he put on Georgia state officials at every level, from the governor to the attorney general to the secretary of state, of course, down to state legislators, to on to an online investigator for the secretary of state's office. I mean, Trump was calling constantly 
pushing these completely bogus theories of conspiracy theories about voter fraud and secret algorithms and Dominion election machines, much of which he was getting from uh, a bunch of eccentric lawyers who were, you know, one of whom was a full-blown QAnon adherent. I'm talking about Lynn Wood, one of the people who was brought in to be the public face of Trump's legal assault in, in Florida. And the other ha- has pled guilty in the in the cons- racketeering conspiracy case in Fulton County. And that's, of course, mm-hmm. Sidney Powell. So from these folks to Georgia state ele- legislators, it was all part of a, a relentless effort by Donald Trump to change the outcome of the 2020 election. Chris, can I, uh, can I jump in and, and, and add to what Mike just said? Um, you know, because we saw that the sort of the widest scope of alleged, alleged criminality had taken place in Georgia, from the fake elector scheme to, you know, lying to, to, to gov- you know, government entities, to a, you know, full-on cyber heist of an election office to get access to voting machines and sensitive voting data to threats against average Georgians. The, the, this, this was the, the case that had the most, the, the sort of the, the biggest sort of human dimension in, in terms of the, the, the victimization of, of average people and, and also a high-level officials, as Mike was alluding to, the pressure campaign against people like Governor Kemp. But in terms of poll workers, in terms of tech workers for the Dominion voting machine company, th- these were people who, who were just, you know, sort of average Americans who were volunteering in some cases to do the important work of, of, of democracy and became targets of relentless and horrific threats of violence, of sexual violence, of of racism, beyond anything that was seen anywhere else in the country. So that human dimension was important. And then a lot of this was also against the backdrop of the tragic history in in, in Georgia of of segregation and of uh, voter suppression that's gone on for so long. So we just thought it was, in a lot of ways, the most compelling story to tell. And this was the story I was hoping someone would write about. You guys spent two years developing this story, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct. And you guys interviewed, you know, I've always wondered, who was who this person who recorded the call? And evidently, you guys were able to find who that person was and tell that story. And I, I don't think it's been reported a lot about that story until now with your books. So tell us who, who was the person who recorded that call for the infamous history that will always be remembered. Michael? Hey, Chris, I, 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 I got to apologize. I cannot hear you. I, I oh. just can't. I, we have a, a really crappy internet connection and I'm not hearing your questions. So okay. I, I'm, I, what we could, I, I don't know. Uh, I can, I can sign off and try to get back on or you could let Danny. T- I'm I'll tell you what, I'll let Danny t- answer the question and then I'll the feed interview. it to you in the private chat. How does that sound? There's a private chat and I'll feed you the question in the private chat. How's that sound? Can you hear that part? All right. If you can there hear you me go. and you want to put a question in the chat and I'll, I'll, I'll take it. There you go. We'll do that. I'll let Dan yeah. take the first swing okay. at that one. All right. Yeah, look, this was one of the most extraordinary stories of this whole book in some ways. You know, one of the things that we found reporting this book was there were a lot of unsung heroes. For one thing, and, and I think it hasn't gotten quite enough attention, there was, as we described it, a 
Republican wall of resistance to Donald Trump at the highest levels of the government in Georgia. So Brian Kemp, the governor, who resisted Trump's furious entreaties to to get him to hold a, a, a special session of the of the legislature to overturn the election, to the attorney general who threatened to resign, you know, rather than be bullied by by Trump, to Brad Raffson. Raffenberger famously, who who took the call from Trump. But this is a story, the person that you're talking about is the the 30-year-old political consultant on Raffenberger's staff, who no one really had ever heard of, named Jordan Fuchs, who made the decision on her own unilaterally to tape this call from the President of the United States. She didn't tell her boss, Brad Raffenberger. She didn't tell Meadows, the chief of staff, who was who was arranging the call, and obviously she didn't uh, tell the president herself. She knew she had to do this because because of of the likelihood, the the certainty that Trump would come out afterwards and distort the call to benefit his own political interests. And so she she taped it. She was on the call, but on mute, so nobody knew she was nobody knew she was there. And it was a really, we, we call it the, the gutsiest, most consequential act of the whole post-election battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the key piece of evidence, not just in, in, in this case, but it is front and center in Jack Smith's case as well. Mm-hmm. And, and one last point on, on her courage in doing this. She happened to be visiting her grandparents in Florida which is a two-party consent state, which means that if you're going to record someone on the phone, you need to get the consent of the person you're recording. She didn't do that, and that meant that she was exposing herself to the possibility of criminal prosecution. We know that when the January 6th committee wanted to bring her forward to testify, a lawyer for the Secretary of State's office asked that they not do so because of the concerns that uh, that she could be prosecuted. Um, In the end, Fonnie Willis, the, the Fulton County District Attorney, who was who was leading the investigation of Trump in Georgia, was able to put her in the grand jury only because she immunized her, and so they did get her test- testimony. But an extraordinary story from again one of the unsung heroes of the Georgia, the whole Georgia episode. There you go. Without her, we may have never even heard of this. Absolutely. And I think it was rumored that he was making the same calls to Michigan and other places, but there was no recordings of him. I think there was, I think there was at least one attorney general or election official that said, yeah, we got a call from Trump and you know, whatever, but evidently that was going on still. And and this is the only one we were able to really capture. Is that correct? That, that, that's right. You know? And, and so we don't know what else he said on any of these other calls, but we certainly know what happened in Georgia and, and, and here we are as a result of it. There you go. Now, you guys have exposed several things in the book. What are some of the other mind-blowing things have you did you uncover in the book that, you know, I, I'm seeing the different things about what's been reported in the book. What were some of the other surprises that you found that uh, are in the book people are going to be like, holy crap. Mike, can you, uh, can you hear? Or do you want me to take it? No, no. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to have to punt on this. I, I just, okay. I, I cannot right. hear. I mean, Danny, Danny knows the book as well as I, and I go. can handle it, but I'll I have you in here. So I'll let, so, let Danny take care of it. Okay. okay? You're going to sign off. All right. Sorry. All right. See you later, Mike. There you go, Mike. It's yeah. always, when you're on the hotel road, 
you know, yeah, sometimes those yeah, it's, tough. Noise. It's, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> we got a bit spirit. Fortunately, I've been doing this for the last couple of days, so I actually, yeah. I actually remember what's in the book. Um, <laughs> uh, look, Chris, there, there's there, there are a ton of of revelations in this book, and and all sorts of things that that really surprised surprised us. Let me tell one of I think the most dramatic stories in the book that mm-hmm. comes actually in the in, in the prologue, and then we revisit it toward the end of the book. But we talked a little bit about the threats against you know poll workers and and and, and other people involved in in administering the election in Georgia. Fonnie Willis, the DA, and her team were the target of relentless threats after her investigation really got going. And a lot of it was generated, I think, by Trump, who was out there tweeting about her and calling her a racist and calling her a fascist and a thug and so on and so forth. That clearly riled people up. But in the days before she announced the indictment, Fonnie, the, the, the threats against Fonnie Willis were really intensifying. And mm-hmm. Wherever she was, she was getting these threats because many of them were coming into her her cell phone. There was a one person in particular who was calling regularly, and he had this creepy dis- computer disguised voice, and he was making the most sickening sexual and wow. racist threats. I'm going to you. I'm going to I'm going to you. Look, she had gotten used to a lot of these kinds of awful threats. But what really rattled her was when this person started to mention her, her, her daughters and she, and he, and he, and he pronounced their names correctly. And he indicated he knew where they lived and he actually said what their addresses were. So right around this time, a couple of days before the indictment, her security staff discovers on a dark web MAGA site a an assassination threat. Oh. The, the words were, the best time to shoot her is when she leaves the building. Wow. So they, the security staff, came up with an elaborate operation to protect her and to smuggle her out of the building. And it really extraordinary. So this occurs on... The evening that the indictment is announced, Fonnie Willis gives a midnight press conference. We were there. We we watched it. Unbeknownst to us and reporters who were there from all over the world, when she leaves the, the room, she heads into a back office. And when she gets there, she takes off her business attire, black business suit, you know, her her string of pearls, and she puts on civilian clothes, sweatpants, t-shirt, sneakers, and a baseball cap. Meanwhile, a member of her of her team, one of her investigators, who's about the same size as Fonnie Willis, puts on clothes very much resembling what Fonnie Willis was wearing. Black business suit, a string of pearls, pumps, and a and a black a black bob wig. Uh, that looked like uh, uh, Fonnie Willis. The she she puts up one one other accessory, which is important to note, which is a a Kevlar bulletproof vest, <laughs> because because the body double, along with a number of 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 other members of the staff who are who are posing as 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 deputies as Fonnie Willis's deputies, they walk out the front of the court 
uh, courthouse and they get into official black SUV and, and leave the courthouse. Fonnie Willis and her actual staff dressed as civilians, they sneak out the back of the courthouse, they get into unmarked civilian sedans, and they're whisked off to an undisclosed area. Fonnie Willis ends up at the, the, you know, sort of corporate hotel, the hotel where she was staying under armed guard and and waits out the storm after after the indictment. So a pretty dramatic story. There, the, it, I, I can go on if you want me to the, the, to talk about other revelations, but I'll please do. Yeah. I mean, that, that's extraordinary. You feel like we're living in Colombia. You know how Colombia has to have those yeah. secret courts, and you know, yeah, yeah, it, 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 exactly, exactly, <laughs> and right, and and it's an important point because you know the 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 fact that we don't we don't feel safe. In, in our courts, in the institutions that, that are the, the symbols of, of, of the rule of law uh, mm-hmm. in this country is, is problematic. The other thing I would say that we found both surprising, revelatory, and, and really disturbing was the, the extent to which the QAnon kind of conspiracy cult was a driver of the, of the Stop the Steal enterprise. We all knew that, you know, some of these people involved in all of this kind of dabbled in, 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 in the QAnon conspiracy. But we did not realize the extent to which uh, key, key figures were, were, you know, were really, you know, almost driven by, by, by this, uh, by, by, by these crazy conspiracy theories. Mike, I think, mentioned the lawyer, Lynn Wood, um, you know, who, who was one of the most celebrated lawyers in America. I mean, in the 90s, People as old as we are will will remember that Lynn Wood represented Richard Jewell, the falsely accused Olympic bomber, mm. uh, the Benet Ramsey family. And then at some point, you know, in the last few years, he went down the QAnon rabbit hole. He was he 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 was tweeting that Mike Pence w- would be executed by firing squad. That Chief Justice John Roberts was involved in pedophilia and child sex trafficking. These are cornerstones of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And he really became a kind of symbolic, symbolic of the, of the relationship of the kind of uh, symbiotic relationship between QAnon and, and Trump world. And even after, you know, posting all of these, these crazy things, he was invited into the inner sanctum of the Trump campaign's kind of legal command center he was he was the, the the really the face of of trump's quixotic legal battle in in georgia um and, you know this stuff isn't it's not just weird and exotic you know it's consequential and and it's dangerous because because linwood was filling the you know so, social media channels with hateful rhetoric you know these this just that that, that encouraged this sort of torrent of, of violent and hateful threats mm-hmm. and it terrorized average, average American citizens. And so I, I just think that people don't, aren't fully aware or, or appreciate the extent to which QAnon was a factor uh, mm-hmm. in all of this. I just make one last point. You know, Trump was calling Linwood and cheering him on. We have audio tapes of Trump calling wow. And one of the most important figures in the QAnon conspiracy, the guy who who 
you know, basically ran the platform on which QAnon conspiracy theories were, were spread and who some people believe was was Q himself, although he, he eventually denied that, a man named Ron Watkins, he was actually involved in the discussions and the planning wow. with Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell. And he was piped into their meetings from Japan where, where he where he lived. And what the, the last thing I'll say about this is Ron Watkins at one point tweeted a video of a Dominion tech worker, Dominion being the company that that made the voting machines that were used and were the, the, the object of, of a lot of these ridiculous conspiracy theories. He tweets this picture of a Dominion tech worker in Georgia, a young guy, an immigrant from North Africa, who's putting a, a flash drive into his laptop. And he says, with no evidence at all, that this guy was manipulating voter data. Utter and total nonsense. Ron Watkins had hundreds of thousands of, of followers on, on Twitter, on X, now and it unleashed all of the, the 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 QAnon foot soldiers who went after this guy. They doxed him. They threatened him. He ended up there were they were putting animated nooses on social media outside of his house that were swinging ominously. Our understanding is this young guy for for years after all of this happened was still suffering the effects of PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, from, from all of this. So again, really consequential and dangerous stuff that had a real impact on, 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 on average Americans. There you go. And I'm glad you guys are writing this stuff because the importance of journalism is to remind people and give them a more in-depth effect of what went on, you know, cause people, you know, they forget, you know, what's the joke about Americans after three weeks, you know, they forget and whatever's going on the Kardashian is more important. And so it reminds people of like, Hey, this is how hellish it was and how dark of a moment was in our history. I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there was maybe a handful of people who stood between us and the brink. There was Rathesberger. There was the two people at Justice that told Eastman to shove it up his woo when he tried to take the thing. There was probably actually maybe one more. There was the the White House, the White House, the attorney for the White House. I forget his name, who who stood up in that big meeting they had where they got in the fight with. Ah, uh, uh, yes, uh, I think that was. Um, uh, Cipollone, uh, Cipollone, yeah. 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 yeah, and then Pence in saying we're not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, you know, follow the Constitution. I think, the, I think there's maybe five people that stood between us and the brink. Maybe there was more that refused that did what Rathensburg did. We just don't have a recording of it. Yeah, and and, and look, that is, you know, if, if there is a a hopeful story in all of this, it's that some people do have the courage and do stand up. And 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 make and make a difference, and and that and that is an important story of what happened in Georgia, that Republican yeah. wall of resistance that I that I talked about. It would have made a huge difference in, in Georgia if the if the government, you know, Trump thought Trump thought he one of the reasons he focused on Georgia was because he thought you know Georgia was in the bag. First of all, Georgia had gone Republican since 1992. He he fully mm -hmm. expected he was going to win there, but also Republicans controlled the government. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at, at all levels from the legislature to the uh, the governor's mansion so 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 he fully expected that you know Kemp and, and the others would would back him up and the fact that they didn't was really significant i mean had they been able to call a a session a new session of of of, of the legislature who knows what what might have happened and you know the thing that is i you know i, I think that is 
worrisome is you know, we're about to go through an election in all likelihood again between Trump and Biden. And that's, you know, troubling in, in you know, in, in a number of ways. First of all, um, you know, in, in, in Georgia and, and elsewhere, the, you know, Trump is going to do whatever he can. And obviously he's going to do whatever he can to, to make sure that he's got his own people in place who can do his, his bidding. But it is, it is also, I mean, even if you think about the, 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 QAnon issue that I was I was just talking about the there's a sense that after 2020 you know the the sort of QAnon thing beginning to to fade a bit from from people's minds we were in the media we weren't writing about it as much it it, it sort of was not at the at the above the surface but it was and it is these sort of dark forces are still bubbling kind of menacingly beneath the surface mm-hmm. uh, and the polling suggests that there's still a significant percentage of Americans who are either, you know, full-on QAnon adherents or are QAnon curious and susceptible to QAnon, 25-30% maybe. Wow. So if you think about this looming almost certain election, I think, between Trump and Biden again, that that clash, I think, is, is likely to fulfill the prophecy of a lot of QAnon people that, that Donald Trump is going to battle Biden and is going to win back his, you know, his, his restore his rightful place as the leader of this country. And you got to believe that, that Donald Trump is going to tap into that paranoia for electoral purposes and legitimate, legitimize a lot of those crazed beliefs. He did it the first time around. I'm not sure he has any incentive not to do it again. And, and that could lead to violence again. There you go. You know, and I think I think the damage was done, even though, you know, George is now prosecuting him and everything else. I saw you see the stats, I'm sure you've seen them, where people have less faith in our elections than ever before. Even like normal people who aren't, you know, they're maybe a little bit more moderate or uh, first time voters, they're questioning our elections. And I mean that's 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 what has Putin laughing to the bank. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's all you need is yeah, and, 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 and Trump has been doing it. You know, since he won in 2016, in fact, he was doing it before he won in 2016, where mm. where he's, you know, where he said that immigrants are going to vote and, and you know, and, you know, and, and I'm not I can't lose. And if I if I did, if, if I do lose, it's only because of, you know, f- fraud in the election. And and, mm-hmm. and again, who, who, who here thinks that he's not going to do that again? Yeah. He's, he's got every indication is is, is that he will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's that is problematic and it's corrosive to our democracy if you know half the population uh thinks that 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 democracy you know is 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 fully broken and elections don't work yeah yeah let me ask you this the today the news came out that the prosecutor who's i believe is the lead prosecutor in the georgia case he settled his divorce today ahead of testimony that he might have made so he basically avoided testimony and shut down the thing. Do you, did you guys have any inkling in your book? I know you guys have probably been in edit and, and waiting to print for a while. Did you have any inkling of this divorce story and any potential, you know, affair with Fannie Willis? We, we did not. And uh, interestingly, you know, since it all happened, I've spoken to people who are close to, to her and who work with her and they were all completely shocked. So the people wow. around Fonnie Willis had had no idea that this was going on. We should say that she has not 
acknowledged it yet. She has not confirmed the allegations, but uh, we're expecting that she's going to file a response to that original motion that dropped a few yeah. weeks ago later this week. The deadline is is on Friday. We did write about Nathan Wade, the lead prosecutor who she was allegedly having this improper relationship with. And and interestingly, he was not the first, second, or or you know, possibly even third person that she went to for, for this job. She originally went to Roy Barnes, who was the former Democratic governor, the last governor in Georgia since uh, I guess he, I guess he was governor in the, in, I can't remember the exact, in the, can't remember exactly when he was, when he was governor, but anyway, the last democratic governor of of Georgia and a real heavy hitter, like one of the premier lawyers in the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she also went to a guy named Gabe Banks, who was a former federal prosecutor and a very well-respected criminal defense lawyer. He too turned her down. The reason that both of them turned her down largely was because of these threats Roy Barnes said to us, hypothetically, because he didn't want to talk directly about it, he said, hypothetically, would you want to be followed around for the rest of your life by, by a bodyguard? And wow. Gabe Banks, we understand it was his, his family. He was concerned and his, and his wife was concerned about wow. uh, potential threats. So she ultimately settled on, 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 on Wade. And some people have questioned whether he had the credentials to, to be the lead lawyer in a case like this. What's important to understand, and I think has not been really fully reported, is that Nathan Wade was never anticipated to be the, the, the main trial lawyer in the case or the sort of legal architect of the case. He was always going to be the, the kind of manager, the, the guy who was behind the scenes, the guy who ran the grand jury process. And by all accounts, he was very good at those things. In fact, I spoke to one of the grand jurors who who watched Wade uh, over you know hundreds of hours, uh, help navigating the grand jury through you know dozens of, of witnesses, thousands of documents, you know some of the legal issues that they had to deal with, and said that he was he was really quite good. There is a suggestion that you know she 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 hired someone who was not who didn't have the credentials for a job like this because they were lovers, and I think it's more complicated than that. Also, we don't know that if if they were having an, a, a relationship, a romantic relationship, we don't know whether it started before or after she hired him. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, imagine, imagine it wouldn't really overthrow the case or derail the case, other than just to throw mud on it and you know. Have yeah, but well, this is Trump an important. There. It's an important point, Chris, uh, uh, because um, th- look, the 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 theory. Of, of the Roman motion is that Fonnie Willis and her whole team and therefore the whole office should be disqualified from bringing this case because of, because of its conflict of interest, because the relationship with, with Nathan Wade and the fact that they went on vacations together and there were some financial entanglements suggests that she has some, some stake in the outcome of this case. That rests on the idea that because she was paying Nathan Wade and they mm-hmm. used maybe some of that money to go on a few trips that uh, that they were essentially there's there was some kind of a corrupt agreement between them hey uh, let's prosecute the former president of the united states that way we have this case that'll go on for a long time we can make a lot of money and go on a lot of trips it's absurd uh -hmm. you know all prosecutors get paid for their uh, for their jobs they all would have an incentive and and the reality is that conflict of interest the conflict of interest rules in Georgia are quite clear. First of all, they have to be an actual conflict. Second of all, you 
you know, you have to have, it has to be something that would give you a real, where you have a, some, some improper stake in, in the outcome of, 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 the, of the case. So for example, if Fonnie Willis had been dating the judge in the case or a defense lawyer in the case or a cop in the case who was a witness, you know, that would be problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, for example, and we know this is, she didn't do this, but if, for example, she had hired Nathan Wade on a contingency fee basis, i.e., hey, I'll pay you X to do the case, but if you got a conviction, I'll pay you twice as much. Hmm. That would that would that would mean that he had a a stake in the outcome, and and you know th- that would suggest you know the, the improper bias or, or 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 whatever. And that's not the case either. In the end, Judge McAfee, Scott McAfee, who is the judge presiding over this case, is going to have to look at Georgia law and mm-hmm. precedents and make a decision based on those things. It's not about the optics. Gee, this looks bad, and so I'm going to toss her from the case. Although, you know, judges have a fair amount of discretion, mm-hmm. and so we don't know exactly what he'll do. But but uh, most legal experts uh, that I've spoken to think it's unlikely that he will disqualify her. That'll be good. I would hate to see this whole thing unravel. And, that's, and, then, and that is the risk because mm-hmm. – and I'll explain why. The, the way it works is if she is disqualified, nobody on her team can, can handle the case. Wow. And, in fact, n- nobody in the office – uh, can, because she's the district attorney, so it wow. uh, the conflict would taint the entire office. That means they'd have to try to go. They would it would go to a something called the the, the prosecutor's council in in Georgia, and they would have to figure out to do what to do. They would have to find another district attorney's office that could take on this case. There are not a lot of district attorney's offices in in Georgia that have the resources to take on a case like this. And imagine, you know, they, the, the, the team would have to, 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 to learn you know, all of the ins and outs of the cases to reinvestigate parts of the parts of the case. I mean, it would be a disaster. And, and I think there's a, a, a likely chance that it, it, it would never, it would never get to trial. Yeah. Or be delayed. And definitely, you know, definitely. Yeah. We had Peter struck on and, and, you know, he'd, he'd been on the Mueller report the more the commission thing and uh, the you know the incidents with his messages he's a really nice guy but the incidents with his messages with lisa page and stuff that just tainted the report and so i'm sure even if they don't find any impropriety they're they're just going to keep painting you know the the georgia cases you know there this went on and you know all that all that crap to try and devalue it and stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah, they, 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 they will. I mean, you know, and they had been doing that even before any of this came out. So that was mm-hmm. the playbook. And now they do have some, you know, they have some fresh ammo. Yeah. You know, it'll be if she hangs on, which I again, I suspect she will. If she hangs on, you know, it'll be interesting to know how much how much juice that continues to have or if it sort of fades over time. I think, you know. My guess is that after the 15th of February, when the judge is holding a hearing in this case, after this is resolved, if she hangs on, you're going to start seeing Fonnie Willis doing the kinds of things that, you know, maybe need to be done to rehabilitate some some of this, uh, these, these reputational issues, maybe doing some big interviews. And I suspect you will also see her in the courtroom. She is a fierce uh, an incredibly talented courtroom lawyer, and I think that may be part of her strategy to rehabilitate her reputation. There you go. She'll be angry. So uh, very insightful, man. Lots of great data. Give us your final pitch out for people to order up their book wherever fine books are sold. 
Look, I think the 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 virtue of of writing a book and, to, and, and doing kind of nonfiction na- narrative narrative nonfiction is that you know you we had an opportunity to sort of tell the whole story of of the Georgia investigation and and as we call it the the plot to steal an American election. It's all in one place. It's it's character driven and it makes a lot of you know, we use narrative and characters to make some larger points about, you know, where we are in this country right now, in terms of elections, in terms of the threat to democracy. And, uh, you know, and and it's, it's, and and it's a really important story going forward. We didn't just write this story because it was a colorful tale. We wrote it because we thought it was a, um, uh, a warning signal for what, is looming what could happen in in 2024 and people need to understand what happened in 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 2000 and 2020 to be on guard for what could happen in 2024 so we think it's a a really important book in that respect and the last thing i'll say is just to come back to something i said before which is sometimes these these you know news stories can seem distant and remote and it how does it affect me personally um well the people who were targeted in Georgia, the average Americans who gave up their time and sacrificed so that to give people the right to vote freely in this country, you know, they are just average Americans like 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 many of us, and they suffered terribly because of all of this. And it, it could be any of any of us, any civic minded person who wants to participate in, in our democracy and vindicate, you know, the, the, the rights of, of Americans to be free. They are all potentially targets of this kind of conduct. And that's important for everyone to know. Yeah. I mean, we, we are all the stewards of our democracy. Exactly. What very well said. We, we need to defend that. I mean, 247, 248 years. Let's hope we can get to 250 yeah. for just yeah. for a round number of it. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad you guys are out there with the book. I'm glad you do the hard-hitting work of telling these people stories of heroes and uh, reminding people, you know, who've forgotten. You know, a lot of this stuff, like you said, just gets, this some crap went back, went back there. So thank you very much, Dan, for coming on the show. We really appreciate thank it. You. Give appreciate us your doc- thank you. Give us your .coms anywhere you want people to follow you on the interwebs. I, I've been back on X to promote the book, so I'll be there for a while. It's at D. Clydman, and D. Clydman is also my my Instagram, and uh, you know Facebook. I think it's also D. Clydman, but uh, you know, or, or or maybe it's just uh, Dan Clydman. So those th- those are the places where you can you can uh, you can find me. And I'm I'm at uh, CBS News on the investigative team there. So if anybody has things that they think ought to see the light of day. Hit me up, and, uh, and and hopefully we can we can do do the good investigative work that needs to be done in this country for CBS. There you go. I, we love journalists. You guys stand between us and the brink, <laughs> except for one channel. I, I think we all know the three letter words that are on that channel. But we love journalists. So there you go. Thank you very much, Dan, for coming on the show. Order up the book, folks. It just comes out today, January thirtieth, twenty twenty four. Find me the votes. A hard charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and a plot to steal an American election. Remember, folks, we are all the stewards of our democracy, and it's really important that we keep one. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. And that should have a sound.